You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Wrath of the Quiz Show. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Lauren Bailey. Hi. So this month, we are putting the pandemic behind us and just having some fun. We've each created a quiz, and we will test the other's trivial metal. Mostly we really miss our Tuesday evening trivia nights. Yeah. Yeah. But we can recapture that glory tonight. (laughs) With four quizzes on four subjects, only one of which I know. So I'm just going to pass things over to Lauren, who's going to start us off with a quiz on a subject unknown. Thanks, Jim. I was originally going to do a quiz on carceral justice and the lack of it in Manitoba, along with the recent multiple extrajudicial murders by Winnipeg police. But that's a nuanced topic that really isn't suited for a fun quiz show. So I asked myself, WWJD, as in, what would Jeff do? Where Jeff is Jeff Sinclair, (laughs) creator of our favorite local (laughs) trivia night that we all miss. And I came up with words. Sweet. Jeff would do words. (laughs) Or landforms. (laughs) The quiz topic that almost broke our team. Well, anyway, here's a quiz of amusing words in the English language, based on some listicles that all seem to have cannibalized each other. Our first word, macrosmatic. Adjective. A. Having a good sense of smell. B. Having a good memory. C. Having a large vocabulary. Or D. Having a good sense of touch. Who has to go first? Uh, you can go first. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to pass? First. So, if it was macrosomatic, I totally would have gone with sense of touch but now i don't know macrosmatic i'm still gonna go with sense of touch Ugh. okay not confident jim i was going to say the exact same thing as ashlyn macrosomatic i would say touch uh, somatosensory being the um uh, feeling of your body but macrosmatic i'm gonna have to go with a sense of smell i guess okay and laura i'm going with a sense of smell okay macrosmatic a having a good sense of smell Mm. Yay! Mm. Yeah, it goes kind of, it sounds a lot like anosmic or whatever, yeah. so yeah. that yeah. makes sense. Yes. Anosmia, yeah. So Jem and Laura both have one point. This is out of ten, by the way. Word two, dipnophobia. Noun. A, a morbid fear of new policies. <laughs> B, a morbid fear of stomach aches. C, a morbid fear of dinner parties. D, a morbid fear of travel guides. Laura. No. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to go with A, the morbid fear of new policies, just because that is 
a hilarious thing to have a morbid fear of. Jim? I think it's a completely reasonable thing to have a morbid, <laughs> morbid fear of. God. I have a morbid fear of new words. <laughs> That's not true. I don't want to just draft in Laura's wake. But <laughs> Hey, 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 maybe I know where I'm going. Huh? Huh? I'm going to go with D, morbid fear of travel guides. <laughs> Why not? Okay. And Ashlyn. <gasps> I'm going to go with fear of dinner parties because that's the funniest one. Okay. <laughs> and Ashlyn is correct. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Dipnophobia is a morbid fear of dinner parties. Oh my goodness. Our next word, word three, is fudgel. Verb. A. Pretending to read. B. Pretending to sleep. C. Pretending to work. Or D. Pretending to draw. Fudgel. Jim. C, pretending to work. Okay. Laura? I'm also going to say pretending to work. Ashlyn? Pretending to draw. And the Newmans oh. have it. Pretending to work. Word four. Groke. Verb. <laughs> A. Groke. A. To fart and wait until someone notices. B. To look at someone while they are eating with hope that they will give you some. C. To smile out of politeness and not because of actual humor. Or D, to hold your nose. Laura. Oh, I like a lot of these definitions. Why, thank you. <laughs> I fudgled all afternoon thinking of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I pretty much fudgled my eight-hour day as well. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to go with B because I think it's very funny. Okay. Jim? B through D all seem plausible to me. You don't think it's about a fart? I'm just no, curious I hope it's as about to farting. why the definition <laughs> would include and wait until somebody notices. Not just like hope nobody notices or whatever. No, haven't you but ever like... You have haven't to, you ever like like farted and then not. waited until some... <laughs> nope. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're a better person than I am, Jeff. <laughs> I've done this a couple times now, but I think I'm going to go with C, even though I feel like B is actually slightly more likely. So to I'm, smile I'm out of try politeness? To game it and go with smile out of politeness. Okay. And Ashlyn? I'm also really torn between B and C. I feel like I do B a lot. <laughs> do B or not do B? That is the question. <laughs> oh, God. And it's, it's a lot like grok, which is like to understand. I'm going to go with C. To smile out of politeness. All right. And the answer... To look at someone while they oh, are eating with the hope that they will give you some. So Laura, Laura got that one right. Laura's kicking some butt here. Question <laughs> five. Gentacular. Adjective. <laughs> A. Pertaining to noon. B. Pertaining to breakfast. C. Pertaining to brunch. D. Pertaining to midnight. Gentacular. Uh, I forget who goes first. C. Pertaining to brunch. Ashwin says pertaining to brunch. Jen. I feel like someone named Jen coined this term about brunch with her friends. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow Oxford accepted it. <laughs> are these from Oxford or are they just things you found on the internet, Lauren? They're from some listicles. Okay. okay. So they I could be anything. Do, yeah. I did Understood. not do a lot of deep <laughs> dives into them. Jem. I'm also going to go with pertaining to brunch. Brunch? Okay. Laura. I'm going to go breakfast. And once again, Laura is the one. Damn it. No, this is an older word. 
and it actually like your tentacular oh, cup dejeuner. of tea. Yep. Yep, exactly. Actually, it was my little bit of Portuguese that I still retain that got me triggered on that. Nice. All right. Word six. Choir. Noun. A. A small swamp. B. A question. C. A puddle that stays after spring rains. Or D. 24 or 25 sheets of paper. Laura. B seems really obvious. I love C. It's just such a lovely, lovely thought there. D. Oh, oh. I'll go C. Why not? Ashlyn. D. And Jim. I am also certain that it is D. And this time Laura's wrong. 24 or 25 sheets of paper is a choir. Why is it not one of those numbers, but because both of it's them. an actual historical term and, and not something that Lauren made up. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I it's figured like the as much. Papers that you fold over and it becomes one section of a book, like when you have fancy book-bound books, it's one of those sections. Oh, okay. It's a choir. I love looking at the the spine of a book and just looking at all of those mm-hmm. pleasant yeah. all the little folds. bundles. Word seven, erinaceous, adjective. A. Of, pertaining to, or resembling feeling ill. B. Of, pertaining to, or resembling someone who is Irish. C. Of, pertaining to, or resembling a hedgehog. D. (laughs) Of, pertaining to, or resembling a road barrier. Erinaceous. We'll start with Ashlyn. B seems like the most obvious, and I don't have any reason to not choose it, so I'll pick B. B. Oh, right. Laura. Hmm. I agree that B seems the most obvious, but I'm wondering if it's a decoy. I'll go with A. A. And Jem. C. Of pertaining to or resembling a hedgehog. <laughs> and Jem gets it. No. It- Did Ar- you know that for sure, Jem? I was mm, 85% sure, so no. Erinaceous is pertaining to or resembling a hedgehog. What is the root of that? No clue. Again, I did <laughs> no follow-up. I know, I'm asking Jem how he knew. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It just it just seemed correct to me. After this, I will go and look up the uh, Linnaean taxonomy for hedgehogs and related organisms because it seemed like uh, a taxonomical or related to a, ta- a taxonomical name. I don't know. Yeah, I wasn't sure whether to do all of the decoys as uh, taxonomical names or whatever, but the Ireland one was just too good to pass up. It is the related to the the taxonomical name for hedgehog. Yeah, yeah, that that does not surprise me. Yeah, I was going to go back sense. and look all these yeah. up, but then I was like, ah, I'd rather have a nap. So, all right, question eight: cabotage noun a exclusive right of a country to control air traffic within its borders. B exclusive right of a country to control cabbage distribution. C Exclusive right of a country to control citizenship. Or D, exclusive right of a country to control tariffs. Cabotage. Noun. Ashlyn. I feel like I have heard this word, and it was probably on like an NPR politics podcast or something. So I'm going to go with D, because it sounds really boring. (laughs) Laura. I'm also going to go with D. All right. And Jim. Sadly, I'm also going to go with D. Sweep. (laughs) Damn it. Well, that's also very boring. Cabotage is the exclusive right of a country to control air traffic within its borders. Hmm, now I know. Question nine. Yarbrough, noun. A, a hand of cards containing no card below a 10. B, a hand of cards containing the top point value for that game. C, 
a hand of cards containing no card above a nine, or D, a hand of cards containing the wrong amount of cards. Yarborough. Um, Jem. I'm going to go with D, and the, the, reason, the reason for that is it really seems like something that's named after somebody, and it's just a <laughs> dude who could, who could like not draw the... Oh, you Yarborough it again. Come on. <laughs> but remember, Gentacular was not about Jen and her brunch. So. <laughs> that's true. But it will be soon, I'm sure. (laughs) Ashlyn. So I think that Yarbrough was the last name of Hank from Corner Gas, and he was not a real bright fellow, so I'm going to go with C. Hand of cards containing no card above a nine. Yeah. All right, and Laura. Hmm. I'm going to go with B. B? Mm Mm-hmm. All right. The top point value for that game. Dang. What? Oh, I thought that was the answer. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I should be so lucky. Ashlyn, you got it right. A hand of cards <gasps> containing no okay. card above a nine. Now I gotta well look done. up whether that was his actual name in Corner Gas. <laughs> no, it was Yarbo. I was, oh. I mean, it's close as the first five letters, but I don't know if it was at all related. Apparently this term <laughs> is still well used, like it's still used a lot in Bridge. Hmm. I'd never heard it before I looked it up today. All right, and our final question, our final word. Half pace, noun, A. A quick step where you get back in tandem with the group. B. A small landing where you turn and take another flight of stairs. C. A military command to slow below walking speed. D. A dance step to turn you 180 degrees. Half pace. Laura. I think I'm going to go with C, the military command. Okay. Jem? Hmm. I really like B and C, but if C is correct and I choose it, I probably can't beat Laura, so I'm going to go with B. I like it better anyway. Ashlyn? So I think C seems the most likely, but I also mm. think that B seems like the one most likely to be in a listicle. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to choose B. And Ashlyn and Jim get it. A half really? pace is a small landing where you turn and take another flight of stairs. That's so like, called a landing, though. It has a name already. <laughs> you don't need another name. But it's not a full landing. It's like the landing It's like the landing you guys have on your stairs going upstairs. <laughs> we have like three of those, kind yeah. of. Like, are you talking about the triangular stair? Yeah. Or are you talking about the, the one that's an actual landing? No, the one or... that's about halfway up there, where you turn. Oh, the triangular stair. Yeah. Yes. It's, called it's a just pain. a wide stair. <laughs> Or a narrow stair, depending on which side of it you're looking at. <laughs> well, it's a half pace either way. So for our standings, out of 10, Jem has five, Laura has four, and Ashlyn has four. Jem's game playing at the last question put him ahead. Jem oh. wins this round. I didn't realize I started doing so poorly. Oh, <laughs> I'm very disappointed now. And that's Lauren's list of weird and interesting English words. English just rifles through other languages' pockets after it beats them up, so... We really don't have many. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's my quiz. Nice! That was fun. Oh. Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> so next, I'm going to go, and we are going to learn all about the wonderful world of computers. no wonder it's something you could do off the top of your head (laughs) yeah how did i select this topic i don't know i was having trouble falling asleep and then i pulled out my phone and wrote down the all of the questions and all of the answers (laughs) uh how many questions did you end up with jim i ended up with 12 and then some bonus questions and i pared it down 
some bonus questions. The thing that took me <laughs> longest actually was selecting all of the incorrect answers. Yeah. Because I wanted hard. to make them actually, in a lot of cases, actually correct for something else. If you have any questions before, after, during any of these, uh, please speak up. I love talking about this stuff, as our listeners are about to discover. Sorry. If they haven't learned it by now, they never will. <laughs> so question one. C is one of the most enduring programming languages in the world. Where did it get its name? Oh, uh, Ashlyn first. Are we just making up answers? Oh, right. I should probably give you the option. Yeah, do I have to <laughs> just come up with this? <laughs> like, the closest not to the real line well. gets the point, or what? I know this answer. You don't? <laughs> okay. Oh, oh. Tired. Need some sleep. Okay. So where did C get its name? A. It was designed as a successor to B. <laughs> B. It was developed at Cisco Systems and named for the company's initial. C. Its original name was CPL for Computer Programming Language, which was subsequently shortened to C. Or D. It was an inside joke. Its syntax went through 67 iterations before being finalized for 1.0, and computers at the time, and today, represent the number 67 as the letter C. So Ashlyn first. All of these seem very plausible, but like, so successor to B isn't interesting. I'm going to go with the inside joke one. So D, yeah. 67 iterations. Okay. Laura. I think it's the successor to B. Laura goes with A and Lauren. A, it's the successor to B. And the Lores are correct. Damn it. <laughs> Should have gone with the obvious uninteresting one. Yeah, computer people are generally not that funny. <laughs> so it was not developed at Cisco, but instead at <laughs> Bell Labs, which also developed B. A factoid that developers will often throw around is that C is named after B, but that B is named after Bell Labs, but that also appears to be incorrect. C's original name wasn't CPL for Computer Programming Language. But B was probably named after BCPL, which stands for Basic Combined Programming Language. Hmm. And finally, 67 is indeed the code point for the capital letter C in ASCII, but to the best of my knowledge, C's syntax did not go through 67 iterations, though uh, I'm sure it's gone through much more than that by now. I, I stole that little factoid from WD-40. <laughs> Which went through 67 iterations, I guess. C was 67 pluses after it would be uh, a heck of a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. C plus 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 plus. Question two. Fax is short for facsimile. What year was the fax machine invented? A. 1982. B. 1969. C. 1938. Or D. Prior to 1900. Laura. 1938. Okay. Lauren? Prior to 1900. Ashlyn? I know that it's way earlier than it seems possible, so I don't know whether to choose prior to 1900 or the next earliest one. But I, I remember reading about this and being like, but how? Was, they, was there even electricity? <laughs> so I'm going to go with prior to 1900. 
And Lauren and Ashlyn are correct. It was yeah. invented prior to 1900. The answer is D. You'll notice that I had to be non-specific in my answer, since it depends on your definition of fax machine. But <laughs> everyone can agree that it was in the 19th century. Well, so, most everyone. How how does that even work then? If I will explain. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you thought I was just going to let it lie? No. Alexander Bain of Scotland received the patent for his electric printing telegraph in 1843. His design was subsequently improved by Frederick Bakewell and then Giovanni Caselli, who invented the pen telegraph in 1865 and commercialized it. The primary purpose of the pen telegraph was to verify bank signatures from uh, long distances. All of these machines predate the invention of the telephone, but all have a similar flaw that makes them less than identical to modern fax machines. And that is that they couldn't actually scan an existing document. What they would do is they would require the user to actually write something and they would transmit what was written or drawn. So basically the user would manipulate a stylus and that information would be transmitted and would sort of draw the same thing on the other end. It wasn't until 1880 that the first scanning phototelegraph machine was constructed by English inventor Shelford Bidwell. That is super cool. That is cool, but when I hear stories like this, I'm just like, it seems like these things are really out of sync. I don't know. It's very confusing to my modern brain. How... Seemingly more advanced things came before less advanced things, but then the more advanced things also had, I don't know. Well, almost all of our technologies that we use today are sort of based on the basic universal computer that we use. And so they've all, they're all just computers that are programmed to do different things. Now, it's obviously an oversimplification, but the vast majority of technologies that we interact with are computationally based. Whereas before, people just had to figure out sort of one-off applications in a lot of ways. And so you were able to do specific things without computers, where now you would just use computers. <laughs> and you can do almost anything. <laughs> There's a board game called Timeline that I've never played, but sounds really interesting where uh, you basically get the the table gets a hand of five or six things and you just have to put them in the order that they happened or were invented and it's apparently way harder than it sounds <laughs> <laughs> question three have you ever right clicked on a website and opened up the inspector to examine a page's source code yes it can be very useful for getting around paywalls <laughs> anyway if you did and you happened to see a number sign followed by six f's what would that represent is it a a preprocessor directive. B, the color white. C, an instruction to display elements inline instead of block style. Or D, the insertion point for an external script. Lauren. The color white. Ashlyn. Absolutely the color white. Laura. I was going to say, say the same thing, although I would like to add an option E as an F, we're going to make tons of money off this. <laughs> <laughs> It is indeed B, the color white. I'll go through the, uh, the explanation. Uh, I don't know why that one just seemed obvious. reasonable. So please explain. I don't know why. I have no idea why that would be. Oh, okay. Hexadecimal code. See, yeah, I've heard those indeed. words, but I don't actually know what that is either. It is indeed a hex code, hexadecimal. Neither HTML nor JavaScript use preprocessor directives. Uh, they're interpreted rather than compiled. Uh, and the instruction to display elements inline is the rather reasonable display colon inline. <laughs> 
not hash sign FFFFFF. <laughs> oh, and scripts are inserted via script tags. The number sign, or octothorpe, or hash, as it's most commonly called in computer science, indicates that the number that follows is hexadecimal, or base 16. For yes, indeed, FFFFFF is a number, specifically the number 16,777,215. But it would be more accurate to say that it's three numbers side by side, representing a color in red, green, blue values. FF, FF, FF. Or 255 out of 255 for red, 255 out of 255 for green, and 255 out of 255 for blue. So mix the brightest possible red with the brightest possible green with the brightest possible blue, and you get white. Cool. So I was only super sure about that one because a lot of people of color on Facebook use hashtag FFFFF to refer to white people so that they don't get banned by Facebook for talking about white people. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Question four. The programming language Ada is named for Augusta Ada King. Who was she? A. The developer of Flowmatic, the first programming language written in anything resembling English. B. A senior codebreaker at Bletchley Park during the Second World War. C. The developer of the flight software for the Apollo space program. Or D a mathematician credited with publishing the very first algorithm. We'll start with Ashlyn. Again, all sound plausible. I don't know how old this code would be. Flight software. Okay. Ashlyn goes with C. Laura. I'm going to go with B, the Fletchley Park one. B, the yeah. Fletchley Park. Okay. And Lauren. D. The mathematician. And Lauren is correct. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is this Ada Lovelace? Yep. <laughs> yes, it is. You okay. liar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And well, there's probably I more knew than one that, and I'm like, there. no, exactly. You cheap, cheap, cheap. <laughs> Go ahead and explain to our audience, cheap ass gem. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to give her her name, the name she was not born with, um, better known as Ada Lovelace. She was the daughter of Lord Byron. Uh, yeah, so, you had to give her okay. some random name so that no, we didn't know. No, I gave her her actual name. That's her name. Her name was Augusta Ada King. She's better known these days as Ada Lovelace, but Lovelace was not her last name. Ada Lovelace was the daughter of Lord Byron and the wife of William King, the Earl of Lovelace. Her name was Augusta Ada King, Countess Lovelace. She's best known for her work on Charles Babbage's analytical engine, a proposed mathematical computer. She was the first to theorize that Babbage's computer could be used for more than simple mathematical calculation, and is sometimes credited as the first computer programmer, despite the fact that the analytical engine was never, uh, was never actually functional. Ada Lovelace did publish the very first algorithm on record, and she's probably one of the few pioneering women in the field of computer science that most computer scientists can actually name. But... <laughs> And Laura, of course, is familiar with Ada Lovelace, and that's uh, why I gave her completely correct and accurate name, <laughs> rather than the one she's most known by. But all of the rest of these accomplishments that I listed uh, are also attributed to women in the history of computer science. The chief architect of Flowmatic, which led to the development of COBOL and had a huge influence on all modern programming languages, was Rear Admiral Dr. Grace Hopper. Joan Clark worked alongside... Alan Turing at Bletchley Park as a codebreaker, 
And the development of Apollo's in-flight software was led by Margaret Hamilton, who also coined the term software engineering to describe her work. In fact, a lot of the early work in computer software was done by women. The term That's computer cool. actually meant one who computes, as in one who would process it. It wasn't the machine. It was the person, usually a woman, who did it. Yep, absolutely. There, uh, We had an illustration in an old office uh, that I worked at uh, of a room full of computers, and it was human computers. It was people mm -hmm. doing calculations. Question five. How many bits are in a byte? A, two, B, eight, C, 64, or D, 256? Laura. 256, I think. Lauren. Oh, God, I can never remember. Yeah, I'm going to say 256. I'm probably wrong. And Ashlyn. Eight. Ashlyn is correct. Yep. Yes. Eight bits to a byte. I don't really have anything to add for this one. It's a number. <laughs> it seems like this is just something you just have to remember. Like, so, is there a reason for that? Does it come down to binary or something? A byte is an arbitrary construct. It's kind of like asking how many centimeters are in a meter. It's just a matter of definition. Question six. What is Tim Berners-Lee credited with inventing? Is it A, the internet? B, the World Wide Web? C, the social network? Or D, the artificial neural network? We'll start with Lauren. He is the inventor of the World Wide Web. Ashlyn? I probably would have said the internet if I had just had a free answer. Uh, but Lauren <laughs> seems very confident, and I, I don't know that I would differentiate in my head between the internet and the World Wide Web, even though I know they're different. Uh, so I'll go with B. You'll go with B, the World Wide Web? Yeah. Okay, and Laura? I was also going to go with the World Wide Web. Okay, you're all correct. Because Al Gore invented the internet. Gosh. <laughs> Berners-Lee developed HTML, uh, which is the language of the static internet, at least, and wrote the first web browser. On the 20th of December, 1990, he published the world's first web page, which was a description of how the web itself worked. Mm -hmm. While many people, uh, including Ashlyn, now see the World Wide Web as synonymous with the internet. Sorry, I know, Ashlyn, you know that they're different. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to get that in there. Yeah. Uh, th this isn't the case. They are not the same. This It is the case that they are different. The internet predates the web by decades. Email, news groups, file sharing protocols, and many other communication services use the internet, but not the web. As always, it's a little bit more complicated than this, but basically, if you want to, if you're going to view it in a web browser, it's part of the World Wide Web. It's not, that's not precisely true, but it's close enough. And things like email, you know, the email protocol doesn't use the web. You know, you can send an email without a web page, but most people now, you know, because all of the uh, standalone or a lot of the standalone um, mail clients are not very popular these days, but you can go to a web page to send an email, but the, the sending and receiving of the email does not use the web. I'm not sure I've ever sent an email without using a web page. Really? How would you how would you do that? You would use like Outlook, for example. Oh, okay, then I do that constantly on a daily basis at work. <laughs> no, I've never I've never had a, an Outlook account. Uh, well, you can use Outlook with your Gmail account because your Gmail no, account uh, does not actually use the web. It, unless you view it in a web page. Question seven. While we always talk about kilobytes, megabytes, and gigabytes, 
which would be 1,000, 1 million, and 1 billion bytes, using the short count, respectively, most of the time, what we actually mean are kibibytes, mibibytes, and gibibytes. Why? How many, how many bytes are in a kibibyte? Is it A, 500? B, 512? C, 998? Or D, 1,024. Ashlyn. 1,024. Laura. I was also going to say 1,024. And Lauren. 1024. Any, uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure Laura knows this. Anyone else want to venture a guess as to why 1024? It's a multiple of eight. No, it's, well, it's a multiple of 512, and it has to do with the base eight thing as opposed to the base 10, which is like kilo, mega, giga. Mm. Well, it has to do with the base two thing specifically. Um, but yes, basically, if you're going to line up a bunch of bits, a bunch of transistors, the largest number that you can represent is going to be a multiple of two. If you're working from base two, which only has zero or one, just like our base 10 only has zero through nine, it doesn't have an individual digit for 10, you use two digits for that. Uh, if you're going to represent a number in base two and you want to use all of the digits and not waste any, you're always going to end up with a, with a largest possible number that is divisible by two minus one. So the, God, this explanation is not going well. No, <laughs> not. <laughs> You've explained this to me before in a way that it made sense. So it's possible, Jim. You have yeah, done it, it just, before. It, it just it, it 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 takes a long time and I uh, to explain, and I didn't have the time to actually uh, prepare this explanation. <laughs> Why it was running late. It's two um, to the tenth power, and math is weird. Uh, yeah. So it is two to the tenth power, whereas one thousand is ten to the third power. So okay, that. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, uh, I, I would love to explain why the fact that it is uh, two to the somethingth power is important, but it basically means um, if you only used one thousand of the bytes rather than using all ten twenty-four in your kibibyte, then you would be wasting 24 bytes. You would just be ignoring them because of the way uh, these things are architected in binary. Okay, let's talk about zero indexing. Question eight. What? <laughs> yeah, my thoughts exactly. Question eight. What is zero indexing? <laughs> <laughs> so this is going to go well for me. Is it A, a method of counting in which the first element is assigned the number zero rather than one, or B, an exception, uh, that is to say an error, that occurs when an application attempts to access memory that is out of range, C, a method of writing a program that describes computational logic without control flow, or D, an error that occurs when an application accesses memory that has been written out to disk and must be fetched. We'll start with Ashlyn. Oh no, we started with Ashlyn last time. Uh, you have a reprieve, Ashlyn. We'll start with Laura. I think it's the first one where we start with zero. That was A, right? That was A. Lauren. Starting with zero. A. Ashlyn. I also think it's the first one, and I feel like you've complained about this in regards to how programs deal with time, but that could be something. <laughs> You're all correct. Yay! Yay! Woohoo! Zero indexing, or zero-based numbering, is the way most programming languages work. Uh, and basically means when you're counting things, 
the first thing is assigned is thing number zero, and the second thing is thing number one. And so you'll often hear programmers refer to the zeroth element of something, and that <laughs> that annoys me because even though it is an element assigned the index zero, it is still the first element because that's how language works. Uh, anyway, oh, and when you're talking about my complaints about dates, Ashlyn, you might be thinking of ISO uh, 8601. You're probably thinking about ISO 8601, <laughs> uh, which defines the way dates are represented computationally and has a bunch of very weird quirks. Like for example, it defines a year zero and the year zero is one BCE. <laughs> the year negative one in ISO 8601 parlance is two BCE, <laughs> etc. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, and Time because it, it uses a backpropagated Gregorian calendar, the year zero is also a leap year. <laughs> 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 and so we're behind already. Languages, like MATLAB, uh, when they don't also they also don't distinguish between uh, date times and time deltas, or at least MATLAB didn't a while ago when I used it. And so if you add a year to something, you're adding 366 days because you're not adding any year, you're adding the first year, uh, which was year zero, which definitely existed <laughs> and was definitely a leap year. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I had a lot of fun when the Julia language was uh, was still pre 1.0. Uh, I added some code to the base library involving uh, time manipulation uh, that was lots of fun and is very cool. Uh, so as for the rest of these answers, uh, an exception that occurs when an application attempts to access memory that is out of range is called a segmentation fault. A method of writing a program that describes computational logic without control flow is declarative programming. One of the three primary forms of programming. You have declarative programming, which describes what is. Functional programming, which describes how things work, I guess you would put it. Um, everything is a method of doing something. And then finally, and finally, imperative programming, which is almost all programming languages that anyone has ever heard of. Uh, and that just is a, it only describes control flow. It uh, just describes uh, a, a sequence of instructions to do in a specific order. Things that were, things that are, and some things that have not yet come to pass. And finally, D, uh, the error that occurs when an application accesses memory that has been written out to disk and must be fetched, that is a page fault. And it's uh, not an error. It's technically a fault because of the way it interrupts control flow, I think, but it uh, just means uh, you're using some virtual memory, and so this information is going to be retrieved much more slowly than usual. Okay, that's enough babbling about that. Question nine. What was George Boole's contribution to computing? A. He laid out the principles of Boolean logic. B. He developed the binary search algorithm. C, he invented the Boolean transistor, or D, he wrote the first known non-deterministic computational function. Lauren. Boolean algebra. Ashlyn. Mm, Boolean logic. Okay. And Laura. I want to say logic, but what do you mean by transistor? You've said that word a lot, and I feel like it means different things, and I don't understand. Uh, so a transistor, transistor is used... <laughs> in a little bit of a fuzzy way these days, but in computers, the, the physical machines, a transistor is like a physical gate 
that either impedes the flow of uh, mm-hmm. electricity or allows it through. It's a it's a it's a gate. It's a switch. Um, and it kind of? yeah, it's a, a switch. Yeah, and it represents either an on state or an off state. Now, when we refer to transistors these days, uh, you can refer to virtual transistors, and you can also refer to the things that are actually in your computer that may or may not actually be transistors. I don't know whether from a computer engineering perspective, they're still referred, they're still technically transistors. That's something that I would have to look up. But okay. uh, when I say transistor, I just mean in the general sense, I mean the physical device called a Boolean transistor. Yeah, I'll go with the logic, I guess. I didn't dazzle you with my nonsense, did I? Um, so, so I, yeah, I, I was describing a transistor. There, there is, as far as I know, nothing that is referred to as a Boolean transistor. Boole did lay out the principles of Boolean logic in the mid-19th century. Um, and Boolean logic, or as Lauren astutely referred to it, uh, Boolean algebra, uh, is basically the mathematics of logic and the, uh, the mathematics of determining truth states, and it is completely wonderful. <laughs> basically un- undergirds all of formal logical discourse, and it's great. Um, it is also uh, basically uh, a fundamental requirement for the way computers function. It is used uh, in determining control flow, it is used in determining mathematics and defining concepts, because all of those, all of those things are fundamentally control flow, when you understand how computers work, <laughs> uh, uh, despite what declarative computation will have you believe, uh, control flow is kind of primary because uh, of gates and transistors. Uh, anyway, uh, let's uh, end this travesty with question 10. Which of the following is an accurate description of the Dvorak keyboard layout? <laughs> A. A layout in which 13 letter keys are placed equidistant to each of the user's index fingers. B. A layout that's split down the middle and angled with the aim of reducing repetitive strain, also known as the natural keyboard. C. A layout in which the first six letters are D, V, O, R, A, and K. Or D. A keyboard layout most common in Eastern Europe named for Czech composer Antonin Dvorak. I'll start with Ashlyn. Split down the middle. Laura. C, the DV, oh, however you spell Dvorak. <laughs> <laughs> and Lauren. A. And Laura is correct. It is the what? layout with the first six letters are D, V, O, R, A, and K. Yeah. I know this because my coworker has one of those. And I looked at him like, what the F? <laughs> What's you... the one that's split down the middle then? I thought that was a Dvorak. No, that's just a It's called a natural keyboard. keyboard. God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> I yeah, I know you have one at work. I thought the Dvorak was just the one that had the middle row with the most common letters. I did not say a middle row with the most common letters. I said uh, a layout in which the thirteen letter key in which thirteen letter keys are placed equidistant to each of the user's index fingers. So that would have to be a circular layout, <laughs> I believe. And yeah, that sounds uh, extremely awkward. <laughs> It's based on some actual proposed keyboard layouts. There are a few really interesting keyboard layouts. Um, there are some with raised and lowered keys. I think it was Eric had a a really cool keyboard in which both of their arms sat kind of cradled. And uh, there's a bunch of thumb involvement uh, for use of control keys. Uh, there, there are a lot of interesting uh, keyboard layouts. Dvorak is not one of them. 
Uh, <laughs> Dvorak is a is a keyboard layout that that looks. If you don't look at the actual stickers on the keys or what have you, it looks like a, a standard keyboard, but the letters are just in a different order. Um, and it ha- it has been proposed as a faster method of typing. One of the considerations that was made when developing the QWERTY keyboard, which is also named for the first six letters on the keyboard, if you look at the, uh, the row above your home row, one of the considerations in designing the QWERTY keyboard was slowing down typing to some degree to prevent typewriter keys from jamming, because if two consecutive keys are pressed in quick succession, the the type heads, what are those called? I'm not a typewriter enthusiast, but the, the heads will jam together because they, they descend and move closer together as they're trying to hit the exact same spot on the paper, right? And so you don't want consecutive keys to be pressed in close succession. So I've heard that a lot, but I also have heard that that is a myth. So, okay. So <laughs> you don't want consecutive keys pressed commonly in close succession. However, you don't also you also don't necessarily want to slow down the process of typing words. And when you test people who are natural Dvorak users uh, or native Dvorak users, people who've trained themselves to use Dvorak keyboards, and people who are trained to use QWERTY keyboards, they type at essentially the same rate. Dvorak keyboard users are not uh, as far as we can tell any faster typists than QWERTY keyboard users. No, but the standard is like your your QWERTY you're going your fingers are going to travel like 26 times more than on a Dvorak keyboard. Now, we have come to the bonus section. <laughs> Didn't you just say we were ending this travesty? Yeah. I know, I lied. This is yeah. Okay, cool, Jim. What kind of bonus do you have for us? <laughs> I have three initialisms and mm-hmm. two acronyms. And I would like you to tell me what they stand for. So I would like everybody to write these things down, uh, if you could, so that there's no influence from uh, from the people who are guessing first or last. But before we do this, I'm just going to tally our score so far. So the standings right now are Laura with seven, Ashlyn with seven, and Lauren with eight. Dang. Hmm. So there are five bonus points up for grabs. What I need you to do is uh, write down the uh, what the following things stand for, and I'll have you each read them out one at a time. IP, as in IP address, CPU, HTTP, RAM, and ASCII. I will spell that one for you uh, in case you're not aware. A-S-C-I-I. What do they stand for? I'm going to start with Laura. Uh, IP, I think, is internet provider. Uh, CPU is central. I want to say central processing unit. I know it's processing unit. I can get two-thirds point for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm afraid that's not how this works, but please go ahead. (laughs) I will take a two-thirds point. Um, HTTP is... uh, Hey there, too pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Um, RAM is, I think it's rapid access memory. And ASCII, I don't know. I've heard it before and I cannot remember at all. And I can't come up with something. Ashlyn. Okay. IP, internet protocol? Don't know. CPU. 
computer processing unit, but I like Laura's idea, so I kind of <laughs> wanted to steal that, but that's why you made, him, made us write it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, HTTP hypertext transfer protocol, I think, oh, maybe. Oh, nice. Uh, RAM is random access memory. That's the one I'm the most confident about, but still not 100%. Uh, ASCII, even when I used to be super into the art, I had no idea what it meant and I still have no, not even a single guess as to what it could possibly be. (laughs) And Lauren? IP is Internet Protocol. CPU is Central Processing Unit. HTTP is Hypertext Transfer Protocol. RAM is Random Access Memory. And ASCII is, I think it's American Standard Code for Information Interchange or interchange? Yeah. Interchange. Yeah. We'll go with interchange. And Lauren swept it. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Internet protocol, central processing unit, hypertext transfer protocol, random access memory, and the American standard code for information interchange. I feel pretty good about my showing. Interchange was a... a, I had to pull that one out of the deep... Out of the ROM. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So so you can't remember anything else ever. Nope. <laughs> you can only access. Yeah. Um, ROM, incidentally, is read-only memory. So, uh, yeah. So Laura ends the game. Uh, I'm sorry. It was very close until the bonus round. Uh, Laura ends the game with eight points, Ashlyn with 10, and Lauren with a whopping 13. Congratulations, everyone. Thanks for playing. Thank you. And I'm still going to kick myself over bits and bites for forever. <laughs> but you won, so it's okay. You could also go and make yourself some bits and bites, the snack, and then be fine. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) With those little cheese sticks, clearly the best piece. I would love to introduce you, Laura, but uh, like... All of the other quizzes, I have no idea what yours is about. So um, (laughs) please, take it away. My quiz is all about Canadian roadside attractions and small town claims to fame. Nice. (laughs) So (laughs) we're back to the CanCon. That's great. It's it's good, and we and I made sure to have a healthy Manitoba representation in there. (laughs) Um, If you know your Canadian small towns, maybe this will be really easy. But here we go. Question number one. The town of Coombs, B.C. is known for the Old Country Market, a bakery slash general store slash gift shop slash market that can be distinguished by what on the roof? A. Windmills. B. Sculptures. C. Goats. Let's start with Ashlyn. Goats. I hope it's goats. (laughs) Uh, Gem. Okay, so the inclusion of sculptures as a separate category implies that these goats are live goats? Absolutely. I'm going to leave that up to you, Jem. Okay, goats. (laughs) (laughs) Lauren. (laughs) You are all correct. Yay! Is it a grass roof? Yes. 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 So the building has a sod roof. And so back in the 70s, the goats were actually just borrowed to trim the roof for a while. And then the tourists loved it. And so now they have goats that live on the property and their job is to continually trim the roof. Okay. Next question. Flin Flon Manitoba is named after a fictional character from the 1905 paperback novel, The Sunless City, in which the protagonist finds a strange new underground world. 
How did the protagonist venture to the new world? A. Through a series of interconnected silver-lined caves. B. By digging deep into a gold mine shaft after seeing daylight shine through a crack in the floor. C. Using a submarine to follow a gold-lined passage in a lake bed. Uh, let's go with Lauren first. Um, well, I know there's like actual tunnels under actual Flintblon. So did you say there was one about tunnels? Sorry. I did. Well, yeah. I said, well, A is a series of caves and B is by digging into a gold mine shaft. Series of caves then. Okay. Uh, Ashlyn. I also think series of caves sounds good. Okay. And Jem. Hmm. I feel like this would be very boring if we just all chose the same one each time. So I'm going to choose B. Okay. And none of you are correct. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> so in the book, The Sunless City, the protagonist uses a submarine to explore a seemingly bottomless lake and finds a gold line passage in the lake bed and follows this passage and then finds a strange world that is ruled by women. <laughs> <laughs> What a topsy-turvy world this is. It was 1905. <laughs> um, okay, so here's my bonus question. What is the full name of the protagonist? Flynn Flon Flanders. <laughs> Ashlyn. Uh, Flynn Flon. <laughs> and Lauren. Flynn Flon the Jellical Cat. <laughs> oh, that is very close, but no. No, the protagonist's full name is Josiah, or just Flintabaddy Flonitin. Flinflon, for short. So there's and absolutely no way for us to know that without having read this book there, recently. No, no, there is. Because if you go anywhere related, any kind of website related to talking about the history of the town of Flinflon, this is plastered all over it. And <laughs> there was a Canadian heritage vignette all about it, which I watched during no Saturday way. morning cartoons. It was oh, produced in 78 or something like that. I love those heritage like minutes, but I don't remember that one. It's yeah. not a heritage minute. It, oh. is a, it is a short doc, or not even a short doc. It's a vignette, basically, hmm. but it's along the lines of a heritage minute. Um, and it it's a, a very short documentary in the 70s talking about the history of Flin Flon and how it got its name. If it didn't All end right. with, it's a part of our heritage. And, uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't remember it. So, um, and very, a little bit more interestingly, how this book is connected to the town is that the original, uh, let's, we'll call him a prospector, I guess, who, who made the claim to the zinc and copper ore underneath the Flinflon area, um, he is said to have found a copy of this book somewhere around that area during the time that he was staking the claim and then decided to name the, the, the mine there, the Flinflon mine, and then the town that grew up around it took the name Flinflon after this character. Oh. True story. Okay, number three, Meleb, Manitoba. Once a small farming community founded by Ukrainian and Polish immigrants, this hamlet is now home to a functioning Ukrainian bake oven, replicas of the area's one-room schools, and a statue of three what? A. Soldiers B. Mushrooms C. Cows Jem B. Mushrooms Ashlyn Ukrainian town cows, even though I want it to be mushrooms. And Lauren I'm going to have to go with mushrooms. All right, Jem and Lauren, you are correct. Damn it. Always go with the fun one. 
<laughs> well, there is a memorial to the area's veterans at uh, Meleb's Reunion Park. It's the statue of three mushrooms that keeps this place on the map. The area is well known for its wild mushroom picking, and the three types of mushrooms depicted were chosen to represent each of the area's former one-room schools. Weird, but hey, sure. Those are, those are cool looking. I yeah. just Googled it. Yeah, they are cool looking. And it's just like, there's like nothing left there except this park and a couple of things. <laughs> Which Canadian town is home of the world's largest red paperclip, a monument that commemorates <laughs> one man's outsized success at online bartering? Oh, that guy. <laughs> Your options are A, Kipling, Saskatchewan, B, Kemble, Ontario, and C, Keynes, New Brunswick. Uh, let's go with Lauren. Saskatchewan. Okay. That was a Ashlyn. thing, right? Yes. <laughs> Kipling Saskatchewan is one of the options. Ashlyn. So I'm guessing that the monument is wherever he got the house that he ended up with. And so I'm not sure. I don't think it was in Ontario. I'm leaning toward either Saskatchewan or New Brunswick was the other one. Keynes, New Brunswick. Both have cheap housing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like something that would be in Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah, Saskatchewan was my first impulse, but then again, I don't want to pick the same. I'll go with I'll go with Saskatchewan because I want to. I'm not going to be wrong again on something I want to <laughs> okay. pick. And Jem? I'll also go with Kipling, Saskatchewan. You are all correct. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so. For anybody who isn't familiar with this story, and for those of us, if you recall, a BC man, so a British Columbia man, started with one red paperclip to trade. And through several online trades, he ended up with a house in his name in the town of Kipling. Uh, now, he later donated the house back to the town. And as part of that trade deal, the town was to construct this paperclip monument. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> Um, I actually knew of Kipling before all of this because it is the full service town closest to the very tiny town where my family is from in Saskatchewan. And that town is called Windthorst. So hmm. that is how I knew of Kipling before all this happened. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that the original red paperclip was like a slightly oversized novelty paperclip, not like a normal red paperclip, wasn't it? I do not know. I just know it was one red paperclip and... I mean, it there. was red, which automatically makes it better than a normal paperclip. <laughs> okay, what is Melita Manitoba's claim to fame and nickname that led the town to build a 30-foot-tall fruit named Sunny? Is it A, the area harvests the most fruit per hectare than uh, any other part of the province? B, the area is warmer on average than most other parts of the province, called a banana belt? Or C, they have more days of sunshine than any other Manitoba town. Uh, who do we start with? That was Lauren. Uh, we'll start with Ashlyn. Sunshine. Okay. Uh, Jem. We go with A. Okay. And Lauren. I don't know why they would use a banana for fruit grown in Manitoba. That would just seem weird. Well, we'll do a full spread and go B with the uh, banana belt thing. Lauren, your strategy paid off. You are correct. So Melita is slightly warmer than many other parts of the province <laughs> on average. And it's like a degree or two. But because of that, they use the term banana belt, which is a term for a sort of higher than average climate within a larger climate. I have never heard that before. That is bizarre. Yeah. No, it's a thing. And they built a 30 foot tall banana named Sunny. <laughs> Google. 
Google it. It's it's very happy. <laughs> okay. I, uh, I I would just like to note that Kyle McDonald apparently uh, the original paperclip that he traded was a normal sized uh, red paperclip. It was Thanks. not large or novelty in any particular way. <laughs> in his first trade, apparently he traded it for a fish-shaped pen in Vancouver. Cool. All right. Question six. If you travel to Vegerville, Alberta, you will find the world's largest sculpture of what? Which stands over 30 feet tall, the exterior of which is made of 2,208 equilateral triangles and 524 star shapes, and whose design necessitated the first computer modeling of this type of shape. The world's largest sculpture of either A, an Easter egg, B, a flying saucer, UFO style, or C, a torus, the cylindrical ring shape like an inner tube. Like on Thrive. Like on Thrive. You got it. Uh, Jem. I'm going to go with a torus. Okay. A Ford Taurus. <laughs> Giant Ford Taurus. Ashlyn. I don't know. There's probably not a lot of enormous Easter eggs, so I'm going to go with Easter egg. Okay. And Lauren. I'll do the spread again because I have no clue, so... <laughs> What was the other one? <laughs> the flying Beautiful. saucer. Flying saucer. Okay. Ashlyn is correct. Yay! Vegerville mm-hmm. is home to the world's largest Ukrainian Easter egg, or pasanka, if you will. Uh, the town has one of the highest per capita Ukrainian populations in Canada. And Alberta? Yep. There that surprises are, me. There's a huge amount of uh, Ukrainian people in Alberta, and... Many of their large roadside monuments have to do with Ukrainian things, especially food. Um, <laughs> Is there a giant so, pierogi somewhere? Yes. yes. <laughs> Glendon, <laughs> Glendon, Alberta has a pierogi on a fork. I finally have a reason to go to and Alberta. Then there's another town that has a piece of kubasa. <laughs> <laughs> are they beside each other? The whole buffet. Like, yeah, they are. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of Ukrainian people. I have, uh, that's where my grandmother, when she emigrated from Ukraine, that's where she landed um, there. And I still have Ukrainian family there. There's a lot of Ukrainian people. So, so to make this thing, they actually were, they actually developed the first computer modeling of the egg shape in order to make this sculpture. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Question seven. If you'd like to have an interesting night out, why not stop in Torrington, Alberta, to see the dioramas of a historical Torrington life as depicted by what? A. Stuffed gophers. B. Plastic army soldiers. C. Clown figurines. And we're going to go with Lauren first. Clowns are terrifying. It's Alberta, right? It is Alberta. (laughs) Oh, God. Soldiers (laughs) might be a possibility, but gophers are actually there. Right? (laughs) I'm going to go with gophers. Okay. Jem. I will also go gophers. I think I know the inspiration behind C. <laughs> go, 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 gophers. Da, 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 da. Ashlyn. It's got to be gophers. It's got to be. Yes. Well played. Um, <laughs> the the Torrington Gopher Hole Museum has 44... 44- <laughs> 44 different dioramas with stuffed gophers depicting all elements of Torrington life. So, Why? Um, the town was, the, it's actually because the town was downgraded from a village to a hamlet and they were trying to drive up tourism. <laughs> That's why they built this. Yeah. So see, I assume was indeed inspired by the the time I dragged you to House on the Rock? Um, 
Yeah, but looking at the pictures from the Gopher Hole Museum brought back flashbacks. It was bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, question number eight. Which of these Canadian currency coins are not depicted in giant roadside attractions? A, the toonie. B, the nickel. C, the dime. And Ashlyn. Toonie, nickel, or dime? Correct. Okay, I'm pretty sure there's a giant dime in Nova Scotia somewhere. I think there's a giant nickel in Manitoba, so it's got to be the toonie. Okay, uh, Lauren. I think the toonie is too noony, so <laughs> yeah, I think it's the toonie. They've got a paperclip for paperclip guy. The toonie's older than him. <laughs> and yeah, Jeb. but I, I know, I, I agree with Ashlyn that the, the, the there's a blue nose in Nova Scotia, but yeah, toonie, sorry. Okay, Jem? I was originally thinking dime, but then I'm like, no. Nope. Dime definitely has one. It has to, based on its origin. So there's probably a nickel like made of nickel or something somewhere. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Toonie. Okay. Uh it's the dime. I Really? Have, yeah. Oh my god. There is a Toonie, a Looney, and a Nickel, all in small towns in Ontario. Huh. All right, um then. Yeah, the uh, the nickel is famously in Sudbury because they mine and smelt nickel there. Damn, that's probably the one I thought was in Manitoba. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question nine. Glover's Harbor, Newfoundland is home to a statue of which aquatic creature? A, a lobster. B, a giant squid. C, a humpback whale. And let's go with Lauren first. Squid, because it's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> for no other reason, right? No clue, but I'm going with squid. Okay, Gem. Lobster. Kate and Ashlyn. Mm, torn between lobster and a whale. Gonna go with lobster. Okay, Lauren is correct. Oh there is God. a giant lobster, but it's in New Brunswick. And I'm Ugh. sure that there are humpback whale statues, but not in Glover's Harbor, Newfoundland. It is a giant squid. Would you guys like to know why it's a giant squid there? Yes. Yes. <laughs> well... The two-scale model of the giant squid in Glover's Harbor, Newfoundland, is there to commemorate the time in 1878 that fishermen caught a giant squid uh, that was more than 20 meters long. It remains the world's largest giant squid to date. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Last question. As part of the 1967 Canadian Centennial Celebrations, the city of St. Paul, Alberta, built what to encourage multiculturalism and togetherness, as well as encourage tourists? A. A giant chuck wagon. B. A giant teepee. C. A UFO landing pad. (laughs) (laughs) Landing pad. I don't care whose turn it is first. (laughs) You're just going with it? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, um... Gem. I don't know. TP seems like something I'd do. Wait, uh, which province? Alberta. Yeah. Okay. You're going with TP? Yep. Okay. And Lauren. I don't know. It's Alberta. Do they actually want to acknowledge <laughs> indigenous people out there? And would it be the correct cut? Sorry. Oh, shit. Remember, this was 1967. So. Oh, yeah. That's a TP. long time. TP. TP? Okay. Ashlyn, you are correct. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Remember, it was 1967. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. The town wanted to encourage people to come together and visit from all over the world. And other worlds. Yeah. Yep, it still stands there today. The multiculturalism, for some reason, I was just like, yeah, they definitely probably built a UFO pad because (laughs) who cares about the cultures we actually have here already? You know, but there is like 
on it. There are, there's like a time capsule and there are um, decorations representing all the different provinces and territories of Canada and, and things like that. So there's like more to it, but it was also like, a product of its time you know we were in the space race everything was people really thought that we would be able to get in contact with aliens and and that and so it still stands today there's a flying saucer shaped gift shop attached to it <laughs> <laughs> all right so the grand totals are gem with four points ashlyn with five and lauren with six yeah well done guys Correct. I hope you liked my very fun quiz. <laughs> Lauren is kicking our asses. <laughs> Ashlyn, I'm sorry to say that since uh, you will presumably not be earning any points in your own segment, uh, <laughs> Lauren only has to get a single point to defeat you. <laughs> well, and unfortunately, I have also chosen a topic in which Lauren has a distinct advantage. Mm. So I have decided to do my quiz on facts I have learned while watching the Cincinnati Zoo home safaris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's adorable. I love it. So every day at 2 p.m. Central, 3 p.m. Cincinnati time, uh, the Cincinnati Zoo does a live Facebook video with one of their animals or a group of their animals, or sometimes they take their penguins for walks or whatever, and they tell you things about their animals, and it's delightful. Uh, some of their presenters are better than others. <laughs> there was one notable day where it was the snow leopards, which are my favorite animal in the whole world, and they just, like, had... The cameraman was just, like, trained on a rock the whole time and was like, look, there's kind of a blurry something behind it that might be a snow leopard. And <laughs> the person who was doing the presenting, like might have done a week in the snow leopard exhibit most of them are great though so you should watch them they're delightful <laughs> these are all facts i have learned from the cincinnati zookeepers of varying uh skill and knowledge so if any of them are wrong i would like to just put the blame straight on them <laughs> <laughs> all right okapi babies poop for the first time at what age is it a one week b three weeks c eight weeks or d 12 weeks old and because lauren has an advantage here i'm going to make them go last uh on each question so that they do not influence your answers uh so jim i'm gonna go with three weeks laura all of those seem like way too many weeks to go without <laughs> pooping <laughs> that's a big jump between three and eight I'm going to go eight. And Lauren. I can't remember, but I'm also going to go eight. <laughs> uh, it is about eight weeks. They can go anywhere uh, between six and ten weeks before their first defecation. They stay in a very small area of the forest when they're first born. And the theory is that not pooping for a long time when they're first born keeps them from attracting predators mm -hmm. to their little mm -hmm. den. Mm -hmm. uh, and so their mother will wander off during the day to browse and then come back occasionally to feed the baby. And the baby just stays in this little place without pooping for two months. It's wild. <laughs> oh, nature is And they're weird. not small animals. Like, they're, they're pretty big. So yeah. it, I thought that was pretty wild. Okay, number two. What is the Cincinnati Zoo's most expensive animal to feed? Is it A, tigers... B, rhinoceros, C, Chinese alligators, or D, manatees? Laura first. 
What do manatees eat? I know they're herbivores. Rhinoceros will eat like grass and stuff, so they can probably feed them hay. Tigers are probably pretty expensive. I've been watching Tiger King, so apparently it's very expensive. <laughs> yeah, the Walmart trucks. <laughs> oh God. Oh, it's so awful. I feel like I don't feel like a bad person watching it, but I do feel bad watching it, but not enough to stop. Um. <laughs> to get the full story, listen to the Wondery podcast about Joe Exotic. It's much more nuanced. Well, you can tell, like, I'm I'm near the end now, and you can tell that there was a lot of creative, like, creative editing going on and creative storytelling, shall we yeah. say. Yeah. Um, but it's still a fun ride. That's okay. So tigers are the obvious choice. I feel like I'm going to... Okay, so it was tigers, rhinoceros... Uh, Chinese alligators. Chinese alligators. Or, or manatees. manatees. I'm going to say manatees. Gem. I was thinking Chinese alligators, but then I'm thinking about the volume that a manatee would have to... Because mm. the thing with alligators is they don't actually eat that often. They move very slowly. Or at least that's the impression that I have, which may be completely inaccurate. I'm going to go with a manatee. And Lauren, I was sure it was manatee and then I was doubting myself, but I'm still going to go manatee. It is the manatee. Okay, this is the weirdest fact I have learned from the Cincinnati Zoo. So apparently manatees eat like really high quality greens. And so they just need to buy like so much freaking romaine lettuce and stuff that (laughs) it is they're more expensive than tigers to feed, which is absolutely bananas. That's like, pretty amazing. Makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Fiona does. She does. Fiona's their little baby hippo. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that, that fact just blew my mind, that the freaking manatees are the most expensive animal in this enormous yeah. zoo to feed. I figured it had to be something about it, or I thought maybe they needed to culture their own aquatic species, like <laughs> a plant species or something, and that's what yeah. drove up the price or something like that. But, yeah, it's just hmm. the sheer quantity of mm-hmm. good greens that they need to eat. Yeah. With herbivores, like especially the large herbivores, you just you're looking at volume there too. Mm-hmm. Like not a lot of calories in that romaine lettuce. Yeah. All right. Uh this one is just free answer. There are no options. Why are giraffes' tongues black? Uh gem. Oh shoot. <laughs> I feel like I learned about this relatively recently. My best guess is that it, it Oh, I don't know if this will be an accurate enough answer, but it's just, it's the color of their skin. Their natural pigment is Mm. black. Okay, that's specific enough. Laura. I was going to say something along the lines of the same thing as as gem there, that it has to do with the the same tone as their skin. And Lauren. Sunscreen, because their tongues spend so much time outside of their mouths. You remembered. Yeah. That's uh, good. I like that. (laughs) Apparently, giraffes barely sleep like maybe 20 minutes a couple times a day so they only take these short naps and basically the rest of their lives they spend with their tongues out grabbing leaves and branches off of the trees and so if their tongue was the normal like pink color that most animals tongues are it would be sunburnt from just spending so much time out in the sun so Hmm. it is black to increase its resistance to uv rays that's hilarious why why don't they sleep i don't know so strange so weird or is it just that they're such they've gotten to such a size now that they can't afford to stop eating because like we were just discussing 
the whole volume. It takes so much. Volume yeah. caloric thing. I don't know. Yeah. And if they slept, they would be really vulnerable because like all predators can see them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They and can't you, hide. Yeah. You can't really curl <laughs> up very well. Like that's yeah. so weird that they don't sleep. Little naps. Huh. Okay. I would like that. I would like more time <laughs> to be awake. Sleeping is such a waste of time. No, you mm-hmm. wouldn't. No, don't mm-hmm. encourage Jem. Don't, don't encourage him. <laughs> don't encourage me. I'm finally learning naps again. All right. No multiple choice for this one. What do binturongs smell like? Uh, Laura. Uh, poop. Because <laughs> that's what most zoo animals actually smell like. I have. I don't know. They, they have a distinct smell that is not uh, the usual zoo animal smell. Okay. They're also known as bear cats. Like like a, a musk or like a the skunk smell. Mm. I'll go with skunk smell. And Jim, I'll go with a sweet fruit smell. Mm. And Lauren, I don't remember. I remember that Rico the porcupine smells like onions. Oh, sorry. Was that another question? <laughs> nope. Okay. Um, Only one scent question. Bananas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so binturongs smell like buttered popcorn. Oh, oh right. right. It's apparently very distinct and all of the keepers comment on it and they go home craving popcorn because they smell exactly like buttered popcorn somehow. There's nothing in their diet that would give them that smell. It's just their natural aura. <laughs> hmm, cute. Buttered popcorn. They're freaking adorable too and they have these like long furry prehensile tails that they wrap around everything while they climb. Delightful. Aww. Right, one from today's safari. How long do scorpions carry their young on their backs? So apparently scorpions are very good mothers and they take care of their babies. Which is pretty strange for... For an uh, arthropod? Yeah. yeah. So do they carry their babies for about two days? About two weeks? About two months? Or up to a year? I'm going to say Jem's turn. I'm going to go with two months. Laura? I'm going to do two weeks. And Lauren? I thought it was only a specific type of scorpion, the one that we looked at today. Didn't think it was all scorpions. I could well, be wrong, though. What about this scorpion? <laughs> I think a year. It is about two weeks. Yay! So they kind of glue them onto their backs. And I did, I looked it up because I couldn't remember the exact number of days. And it seems to be like a widely done thing among scorpions. So it wasn't just this one particular kind of scorpion. Uh, Mm. So most scorpions are a dark color. Their exoskeleton is kind of black. But when they're born, they're super, super white because their exoskeletons haven't grown in and hardened yet. So the Mm -hmm. scorpion mom excretes this like glue and glues them to her back until they do their first molt and they harden up a little bit so they're not so vulnerable. Oh, uh, cool. And even after they come off of her back, they'll stay with her for about a year. So that's probably where you got that. Yeah. I but she... remem- remember looking at the baby scorpions and thinking they were really cute. And then apparently I didn't retain any information. <laughs> well, you did kind of have a little nap in there too. Okay. How big are the eggs of the Japanese giant salamander? So the Japanese salamander is one that Lauren hasn't seen yet because we're a little bit behind. But I went and watched it. Are they... <laughs> About the size of a pea, about the size of a marble, about the size of a tennis ball, or about the size of a softball. The Japanese giant salamander. Uh, Laura. Mm, going to say tennis ball. Jim. I'll say marble. And Laura. Did, was, was golf ball an option? No. 
Would you like to make it one? What was the third? (laughs) Write an answer. (laughs) Uh, About the size of a pea, the size of a marble, size of a tennis ball, or a softball. Oh, I have no idea. Softball. Uh, It is about the size of a marble. Jem's got this one. Uh, so even a giant are... salamander can't be that giant <laughs> why not <laughs> like they're pretty decent size like they were they look like they're about this big uh, oh wow that's bigger yeah, than I expected they only live in really fast moving cold waters in Japan like that's the only place they live um, there's also apparently a Chinese giant salamander which is uh, horning in on their territory uh, one of the causes of their decline and they've never been successfully bred outside of Japan and the Cincinnati Zoo is one of the only places outside of Japan that has one of these creatures so they're trying to get a breeding program going there they're pretty neat looking Hmm. Uh, okay how many vertebrae does the neck of a screech owl have so how many vertebrae in just the neck of a screech owl is it uh seven ten fourteen or twenty three uh let's make lauren go first since uh they have also not watched this one I was going to say, this is another one I haven't watched, but they've got a, I mean, they do the, the owl neck thing. So I got to say 23. And... That is my rationale as well. Okay. Jam is also going 23. Laura? 23 seems like a lot, but I do, I like their line of thinking. I'm going to say 14. And Laura pulls it out. It is 14. It is twice the number that humans have. We have mm-hmm. seven vertebrae in our neck and they have 14. And we so can do a is... 90 degree turn and they can do like, what, a 180? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) It is super cool to watch them like sitting on someone's arm and the arm moves and the face is still staring at you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Super creepy and weird. It was very cute. And he was like super young and still very fluffy. It was super adorable. Very much recommend. Mm -hmm. And he kept getting distracted by a squirrel. (laughs) Do all owls have that amount, that many vertebrae or? Uh, It seems like almost all of them have that many. Yeah. Okay. Because one of the freakiest things in my life was watching a great gray just turn its head 180 degrees to look at me. Uh, Okay. Uh, How fast can an ostrich run? Uh, Can it run 6 miles an hour, 12 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour, or 40 miles an hour? And I apologize that this is in miles per hour, but that is how the Cincinnati Zoo told me about it. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't be bothered with the conversion? Nope. (laughs) Only facts I learned from the Cincinnati Zoo. I did look up a few of them to confirm, as I had mentioned, but let's ignore that. Uh, Jem, you first. 40. Oh, oh no, miles per hour. That's... Yeah, what the hell, 40. <laughs> what? <laughs> no! Short stretches. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to say 12. <laughs> yeah, that's probably more realistic. <laughs> and Lauren? This is another one I haven't watched. Mm-hmm. I'll go 25 just to, you know, beat the spread. Uh, Jem is correct with his wild answer. Whoa! They can actually go up to 43 miles an hour. I thought that was too specific and you would clock it on me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I knew they were super fast, but 40 miles per 43 hour? 43 miles an hour. That doesn't Probably make any Probably just for short sense. times. But yeah, dang. that's going to be what, a like, like 80 kilometers an hour? Yeah, it's 69. Wild. 60. Yeah, it's super fast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. I googled it. Yeah. Uh, impressive. Uh, also, mm-hmm. very not smart. Holy moly. Uh, gigantic bird like the one we were watching one of them was 300 pounds one of them was 240 pounds brain literally the size of a walnut (laughs) just no processing power in there (laughs) all they well it's all in the legs all all they can do is run they don't know where they're going there but they know they can run (laughs) 
Oh, and I, I learned an explanation for the whole ostrich head in the sand thing that I did not know. So it is a myth that they bury their heads in the sand. However, if they see a predator, they will lower their head, which may have given the impression to people who were looking at them from far away that they were burying their heads. But when they lower mm -hmm. their heads, apparently it acts as camouflage because to a lot of the predators that are out there, they just look like termite mounds at that point, which are kind mm -hmm. of everywhere in the African environment that they live in. So it is a weird sort of, I am a hill. You can't see me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what was the first animal taken off the endangered species list? Uh, this is specifically under the Endangered Species Act in the U.S. Are you giving us examples? Nope. Oh, uh, Lauren. Panda. Uh, Jem. This is definitely this is definitely in wild ones because uh, I remember reading it, and I also seem to recall that it went into decline again. I'm not sure about that though. Is it the bald eagle? Okay. Ooh, that's a good guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. And um, Laura. I can think of a cat that's about to be on the endangered species list. <laughs> <laughs> um, Felis ampersandus? <laughs> yes. How did you know? Oh, pa okay. Panda, bald eagle. That's really good. Peregrine falcon. Mm. Uh, none of the above. It was the American alligator. Oh, because oh. people stopped making boots out of them or what? Yeah. So the American alligator was in the first list of endangered animals when the Endangered Species Act came into force. And they bounced back so well that they were also the first one taken off of it because they were nobody was allowed to hunt them for leather. And their habitat wasn't really the problem. It was all the hunting so that they were able to come back really quickly after that. So it was only 20 years between the time that they were put on and the time they were taken off um and they are currently listed as least concern which i thought was pretty cool to go yeah. from endangered to least concern hmm. and they had a tiny baby american alligator and it was oh my god adorable i panicked with the pandas i know they're still <laughs> on the list <laughs> no they're not oh i thought remember they were we, the, when they we were talked about uh endangered they're now uh like they're vulnerable still but they're not technically endangered anymore I thought they were one of the ones that were uh, can only be saved with conservation. Like, they're not viable in the wild anymore. Uh, well, they still need help, but that doesn't mean that they're not in that they are endangered anymore. Okay, never mind me. There, there is a lot of um, politics involved in the definition of endangered mm -hmm. and the people who put together the various lists. Our last question is a simple true or false. Most turtles can swim faster than the fastest human. Michael Phelps. Lauren. True. Laura. I'm going with true as well. Jim. True. It is true. And Yay! So apparently Michael Phelps can swim at three miles an hour, which is pathetic, according to <laughs> the... What a loser. <laughs> How many gold medals does that guy have? <laughs> uh -huh. But compared to the rest of the animal kingdom, it's apparently just really sad. And it was super funny. The guy who was holding the tiny... Uh, baby alligator was talking about how fast he could swim and he just said it was so dismissive he was just like this guy can swim really fast much faster than humans but even a turtle can swim faster than the fastest human he was just like <laughs> <laughs> uh, even a really turtle funny. yeah and I looked it up apparently ocean turtles can swim like 30 miles an hour or something bananas like that it's so so fast like 10 mm -hmm. times as fast as the fastest human that's awesome. Yeah. So most turtles can just zoom right past a swimming human. 
Turtles are pretty cool. Yeah. I found that out from Finding Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were they in also currents, talk like though, surfers so for some reason. They had a hand. Okay, that's my uh, animal quiz on the facts I learned from the Cincinnati Zoo Home Safari. Uh, you should tune in to the Cincinnati Zoo Home Safari. 2 p.m. Central, 3 p.m. whatever Cincinnati time is. Eastern? It's probably Eastern. Go like their Facebook page. It's delightful. I think the Assiniboine Zoo is doing similar ones, but, you know. And there's some wildlife preserve in Australia that is just... didn't Weren't they just, like, <laughs> keeping the alligators off with a stick? And a yeah, Dave is obsessed with the Australian Reptile Park. Uh, so the Cincinnati do- Zoo does uh, things like feed alligators at a safe distance using the tools that are meant for that thing. The Australian Reptile Park uses a stick, which they sometimes poke the alligators with to keep them from eating them. <laughs> so they, uh, use the, they use the Tiger King method is what you're saying? <laughs> basically, yeah. And they say things like, oh, you'll notice uh, every time the crocodile grabs onto the meat, he closes his eyes because he's not sure if he got the meat or the guy's leg and he's not sure if he's going to have to roll around to keep this meat. Like, oh, that's comforting. Uh, other things that the Australian Reptile Park does includes uh, like milking venomous snakes and spiders on camera. And sometimes they just go, Ooh, oops, almost got me. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy not the uh not the safest place to work it looks like australians like i get i get the impression just like based on their media have a very cavalier attitude toward venomous uh animals yeah. <laughs> presumably because the entire continent is crawling with them they kind of gotta they have to get used to it otherwise yeah. they would just be in a state of paralysis from the anxiety <laughs> Instead, they're all paralyzed with the venom. <laughs> well, you add you add like this this need to make it normal to live with these terrifying creatures all around, plus the cowboy attitude that you get in like parts of the Canadian and American West, and you got yourself a show. <laughs> <laughs> so I know it was literally impossible for me to win because I would have had to get them all right, and Lauren would have had to get them all wrong, and then they still would have tied with me. So uh, how, how much oh, yeah. did Lauren beat us by? Let me uh, add this up. Lauren did not do as well as I expected them to. Uh, well, the back half was all questions I hadn't known. Yeah, I <laughs> did that on purpose. Uh, <laughs> I will note, um, just for a matter of record, that the Anthropocene Extinction episode was indeed episode 150 of this very podcast. So if you'd like to listen to those segments again, I think they were pretty fun. Uh, That's six episodes ago, because we do not do this show very often. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your donations. Thank you for putting up with this. Uh, Although it it has turned out to be a a much meatier episode than expected. (laughs) Have fun, Lauren. We're sitting at two and a half hours of raw (laughs) audio, folks. Uh, So Jem and Lauren both got four points, and Laura got five. So Laura is the winner of my animal quiz. Yay! I hope I added that up correctly. I'll take it. I'll take it. (laughs) You said it can't be changed. Move on. (laughs) Yeah, I'll get our final scores here. One sec. I am at a slight disadvantage because I did not have the five bonus points available to me. (laughs) But I am not whining. You can choose not to count them. Nah, 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 nah. You, you earned those, uh, all five of those points, Lauren. Okay, so the final standings. We have Jim in last place with 13 points. <laughs> and Laura 
with 17 points, then Ashlyn with 19, and Lauren takes it home with 23 points. <laughs> and well this done. is why Lauren is our MVP on Trivia Night. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I came in second. I felt like I was doing terribly. You guys did great. So for curiosity, <laughs> without the bonus points, Lauren would still have won. I would still have 13. Uh, Laura would have... Uh, Laura would have had... 16, Ashlyn would have had 16, and Lauren would have had 18. So the standings do not appreciably change. Lauren would be the winner either way. So congrats to them. Thank you. Although I will point out that, you know, it was, what, 45 questions? And 18 out of 45 is not a great batting average. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it's a great batting average. It's not a great trivia average. But you don't get well, to answer your own, so you get to yeah. take yeah, so off only, those. You only had 18 out of 35 is better. Right. I forgot that I asked questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, thanks for joining tonight, folks. And th- thanks to our listeners for uh, listening, taking the time to listen to this podcast. Uh, if you have some time and some goodwill to spare, um, you could uh, donate to us at luepodcast.com. We uh, we do accept uh, uh, one-time contributions or uh, monthly contributions. Um and uh, we also accept gratitude in the form of iTunes and Stitcher reviews. Uh, so thanks very much for those of you who've taken taken the time to review the show. And thanks for listening and thanks for caring. Um, and we'll see you next month. What are we going to be talking about next month, Ashlyn? I have no idea. Uh, I, I even opened up the topics channel a couple minutes ago to try and see what I could find. <laughs> I don't know. I'll come up with something. Surprise. It's a mystery. It's a mystery to everybody. Well, good night, folks. Good night. Good night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey.